I, uh, as you can see, I had some coffee this week, and I actually didn't take any chances. I got coffee on the way in, even though the Keurig, curiously, was not working again this week for some reason. It worked all during the week, but didn't work uh, this morning. But someone had set a sign up by the Keurig that, this is a true story. I know you can't read it, but it says, drink coffee, do stupid things faster, and with more energy. So... There can be your motto for, uh, for this, this week if you're a coffee drinker. Well, staying with the idea of food, I, for one, am always watching my weight, especially during the holidays, and I'm constantly, constantly trying to lose weight. If I watch what I eat, I at least do not gain weight. And I've got to take that for a, short, a small victory. But if I lose vigilance for just a day or two, it's like taking my hand off the proverbial steering wheel And it quickly leads to bad things. The TV show, The Biggest Lower, Biggest Loser, (laughs) Biggest Lower, can't speak right. Better drink some more. (laughs) The TV show, The Biggest Loser, is a show featuring overweight people competing to see who can lose the most weight over the course of several weeks. It may be the only show in the history of TV where we reward the one who has lost the most. We only cheer for winners. No one wants to be on the losing end. Evidence the recent Buckeye lost. Nobody was happy with that. Of course, even in The Biggest Loser, the actual winner performs better than the others. In the movie, Patton, George C. Scott plays Patton, and in the opening speech says this, Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. I'm guessing that Patton was not a Cleveland Browns fan. (laughs) But let me re-engage the quote. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. What is true for us was also true for the ancient Greeks and Romans living in Corinth. They did not like to lose. In politics, in climbing the social ladder, in achieving symbols of success, they did not like to be derailed. And like us, to get there, they were an incredibly litigious society. Suing someone, even over small grievances, was a way of life. You grew up with it like apple pie and baseball. Or for them, like baklava and Olympic wrestling, I suppose. (laughs) If you're here for the first time, and we're so glad you've uh, joined us this morning at Linworth, we've been telling a story. It's a story of a very young group of believers And they have a spiritual father in the Apostle Paul who is trying to help them grow into spiritual maturity. And every conceivable obstacle seems to work against them, much of their own fault. They live in a thoroughly pagan culture in which they are a little too cozy. They have broken into rival competitive factions. They have an inflated view of themselves and their own spiritual maturity. They have church members flaunting sinful behaviors that even their pagan neighbors think is bad. And to add even more bizarre behavior, 
They have members taking members to court over trivial issues. Now, taking someone to court in ancient Corinth was a very public experience. Their courts were held outdoors. They were a marketplace, in the marketplaces, for spectators. It's not dissimilar to court TV or to Judge Judy or whatever your favorite courtroom show is. Public fascination with watching a trial has a long history. Citizens would line up during the day, as workers do in some cities, day workers do in some cities, hoping to be selected for jury duty on that day. Corruption ran deep. The whole system was awash with bribes and undue influence, tilting the hand of justice in the direction of the rich and the powerful. Jurors could be bought off. Prosecuting attorneys were cheered as they eloquently made verbal sport of defendants. So, if you had an issue with someone in that city, you ran them off to these very public courts to fix it. If their reputation was ripped apart along the way, well, that was simply how Corinthians handled issues of personal enmity. If the church's reputation took a hit, well, that was collateral damage in getting what I demanded. Well, the reports of this were getting back to Paul, and Paul is digesting them, and Paul is beside himself. Now, in chapter 4, we learn that Paul wrote the things in that chapter so as not to make them feel ashamed. With respect to this problem, Paul is singing a different tune. There is no attempt here not to shame them. And it is feasible, given Paul's outrage, that the parties in mind are related to the rival factions that we described in the first chapter. If that is the case, it makes matters even worse. The courts being a vehicle for humiliating your church rival. Well, either way, in addressing this problem, the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul that the way we handle conflicts matters. In responding to conflict, more is on the line than us simply getting what we think we deserve. The reputation of the church is also on the line, and with that, the reputation of Jesus. And our personal growth as people is also on the line. For the way that we handle conflict is God's university. It is God's Bible college for maturing Christians. The way we approach correcting others or the way that we receive correction. What we do when we feel undervalued or forgotten. The ways that we express anger when hurt. The way we disagree with others. How we respond to weakness in others. All of these are God's are all of these are the crucible that God can use if we cooperate to make us more like Jesus. God's whole plan is to turn us we're like statues without him. We're like statues. We're we're lacking spiritual life and spiritual connectedness. And God wants to turn us into alive men and women 
And conflict is used by God to fit us for eternity. So with that backdrop, let's read. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll pray, and it'll get us into this topic for today. If you're using our Bibles, it's page 9, 9, uh, 954. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's Word. Father, we uh, ask you that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would make your life-giving words real to us and that we would be receptive to whatever you want to communicate to us this morning. And thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit to make these words real to us. Give us responsive hearts to them. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, what I'd like to do is to just ask some basic questions that will help us unpack and unfold the significance of this chapter. And it is a very significant chapter. And then we'll apply it. And uh, even though you may not be uh, in a court case today, we'll apply it to our lives in a, in a more general way. First question. Is Paul against all secular courts? Here, there is a legitimate concern about corruption of the courts in Corinth and concern that their judgment is scaled to a different set of values. However, this concern in no way is seeking to do an end around secular authorities. You know, Christians were accused in the first century of being uh, secular, of, of rebelling, of being rebels against secular authorities. And Paul and Peter, for that matter, go to great length to instruct Christians to submit to those authorities. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are very clear examples of that. 
And in Paul's own life, his appeals to Caesar for justice during that part of his life, there he took full advantage of the Roman judicial system acting as his own attorney. So Paul is not looking for some loophole around obeying secular laws. There is no justification here, for example, of church leaders saying we'll handle a criminal case of child abuse or a criminal case of domestic abuse internally in order to protect people or to protect the church. Um, This is not what Paul is after in this situation. What you have here is a civil case between two members of the church. Paul calls it trivial in verse 3. Now, Corinthian society, they found the civil courts a very useful instrument for pursuing personal grievances. Legitimate reasons for going to court included settling scores with your political opponents, retaliation for breaking trust or obligations, defending an offended friend or relative, competing for political posts, jealousy towards a young rising star, undercutting the powerful, or retaliation against those who interfered with your political ambitions. Is it any wonder in a world without TV or social media that they found a lot of entertainment value in watching these trials unfold? So, the first question, though, is answered quite clearly. Paul is not seeking some end around the secular courts. So it surfaces then the second question, Paul, what is the alternative then that you are giving? So, with the understanding this is not a criminal case, Paul says handle it internally. Find respected believers in your church. They are capable of handling and resolving disputes like this. Allow someone or a team of people with no stake in the outcome to listen to both sides identify the dispute, and then provide a just solution. Then, of course, both parties must be willing to submit to this arbitration, at least if they want to remain in the same community. For these poor Corinthians, and maybe we can relate to this, they just can't get this judging thing right, can they? Paul told them in chapter 4, hey, don't prejudge. Then in chapter 5, he corrected them for not judging the obstinate sinner. Now here he's telling them, hey, you're wise enough to step in here and to make definitive judgments and settle these conflicts. Surely their heads were spinning trying to get this judging thing correctly. Indeed, some things just never change. But did you notice how Paul inspires them? This is very interesting. Paul inspires them in this work by telling them they are capable And how does he do this? Paul does it by peering into eternity to see their destiny. It's an argument greater than to lesser than. If you are going to judge angels, if you are going to judge the world, then surely you have the capacity to deal with these internal disputes within your church. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, what is referring to, we see with a shadow in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, there were hints 
of the people of God, that the people of God at the end of this age and moving into the next age, that the people of God would rule the world. Jesus expanded on saying that the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Jesus also said the 12 disciples will sit with me on my glorious throne and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And finally, Paul expanded that even more to say that all believers, you and me, will be seated with Christ on his throne in heaven. And of course, the throne implies ruling. It implies judgment. To Timothy, Paul says, we will reign with Christ. And finally, in the last book of the Bible, the writer of Revelation picks up on this same theme, saying that we will have authority over the nations and we will rule with Christ. This is the destiny of these Corinthians. And Paul wanted them to see this. Now, when he says that they will judge the world our angels, I believe in essence what he has in mind is that we will rule and that we will reign with Christ in the life to come. Believers, God is the only one who judges in an absolute sense. And that judgment indeed has been entrusted to Christ. The point that he is making is this to the Corinthians, in light of your destiny. He is encouraging them to reject the kind of competitive uh, win-by-gaining-any-edge ethic that was so prevalent in Corinth, and rather employ, bring to bear the peacemaking principles of Jesus, which are at your disposal. Paul is saying you are capable of addressing this. For example, Jesus laid out a plan such in Matthew 18, which very clearly demonstrates how to address personal grievances within the church. Peacemaking, according to Jesus, will be one of the distinguishing characteristics of his children. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Becoming a peacemaker helps fit us for our work here, and fits us for our work in the life to come. Very significant. So, Paul provides an alternative and gives them a basis by which to think about it, to encourage them. You are capable to address these issues. Here's the third question. But Paul, what if? We need a plan B here. What if one party remains unbending, unyielding, refusing any compromise or change? Look at verse 7. He says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Again, they were defrauding one another to achieve some status, some position, some payback, whatever the contested matter was. The combatants in this case could not tolerate the idea of being defeated in court. So look at what Paul does. Very interesting. He brings new meaning to and he reframes the word defeat by saying you're already defeated. Your spiritual community and the reputation of Jesus is already defeated. 
What these individuals had forgotten is that they were a spiritual family. They were brothers. Four times Paul uses the word brother or brothers in these few verses. That was part of the spiritual identity that they had forgotten. Paul is saying, why not let the other win? Why not suffer discredit first? Why not absorb the blow for the greater good of the cause of Christ? Paul had used the example of himself. Look back in chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul said essentially the same thing. He said, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. Paul was leaning on what Jesus taught. In the ancient world, in both the Jewish world and the Greek-Roman world, even more so than our world today, people, it was a very exacting culture where favors and offenses were carefully measured and carefully recorded so that they could be repaid. It's a very exacting culture. And into that exacting world comes the words of Jesus. Matthew 5. Christ said, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give, it to, the, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Jesus' words were as surprising, as offensive, and counterintuitive today as they were to Paul's audience. I want you to consider this very concrete I ran across this illustration involving a church that I thought was so helpful in understanding how this might be carried out in a very real way. It's from an author named Dan Lash, and he tells the story of a church that he was pastoring. And the vast majority of the congregation, over 95%, decided they needed to leave the denomination they were connected to and align with another group. The decision was based on some very serious theological differences. The group that voted to change was certain they had every legal right to keep the building and the property of the church, and they had the majority. The 5% who disagreed filed a lawsuit to keep the building for themselves. In response to this passage here, the majority handed over the keys and walked away from the church building even though it was only 10 years old. It's a very difficult decision for many people. He doesn't say this, but very likely, many people had invested financially into that building. But they believed to be faithful to the Word of God, faithful to the principles that Jesus taught about peacemaking. This was the right thing to do. Now, this particular story had a silver lining. The church was able to eventually purchase a little more land in a different location and experience some tremendous growth. Now, that doesn't always happen, and that's not a guarantee. But whether there's a great earth-ending, human-ending or not, employing Jesus' peacemaking principles is always a win for the kingdom. When we employ them, it reveals we care more for His reputation 
than our own. Well, there were many, many things the Corinthians kept forgetting. Their identity as a spiritual family, their sense of being a brotherhood was one of them. And that's why Paul keeps repeating, don't you know? Do you not know? Seeking an unfair advantage over others, damaging another person's reputation was a way of life that they were saved from. This is not who you are, Paul is saying. This is not what it means to be a son of God and a daughter of God. You are a new humanity. You have abandoned self as king and made Jesus king. And thus you are now part of his kingdom. And that leads us to this final question and to the link to these last verses which maybe felt confusing to you when I read them because they seem disjointed. But here's what Paul is doing. He is trying to double down on their new identity. And how does he do this? He does this by detailing a list of other vices from the pagan way of life that they had been freed from. This was the manifestation of an idolatrous life, a life without God. This is how life without God manifested itself in Corinth. You see the various characteristics there in verse 9 and verse 10. Paul wants them to remember this is who you were, but now you are different. And Paul reminds them that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. What, is, what does that mean? It is, it's a, it's a, a, cultural, a cultural norm, that, and it's a cultural belief that really everyone, your dogs and cats included, goes to heaven. And yet here is the witness of the Scriptures saying, that no, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what is needed to claim an inheritance? In most cases, unless you convince someone outside of your family to leave you money, in most cases, to claim an inheritance, you must find some proof that you are a family member. In other words, there is implanted in you, if we could, a metaphorical seed that bears connection to the one passing down their wealth. That inheritance, spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, that's a physical inheritance. In a spiritual inheritance, we demonstrate that we are sons and daughters of God by allowing ourselves to be directed by Jesus. He is our King. The Father gives us a new nature. We are a new humanity. And empowered by that new nature, we give Jesus the primary direction of our lives. Conversely, when we insist on our own way, when the self, that, that, that nature in us, that old self, when it remains in the rule of my life, when it has never been crucified with Christ, then that self cannot help. It can't help but produce a life that demands self gratification. And that's what you see in this list here. These are the vague the vices of the pagan of the pagan culture in Corinth. Other cultures have some different idols. These were the ones manifesting themselves 
in Corinth. And when the old, when yourself, apart from being crucified by Christ and crucified with Christ, when that self is leading and ruling your life, it cannot help but produce a fruit that demands self-gratification. Here is the shocking truth in verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There is no seed implanted there. There's no seed implanted. The kingdom of God is only for righteous people. And to get to heaven, I'll explain this, to get to heaven, you must be perfect. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what Paul is saying here, in essence, building on the teachings of Jesus, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those in whom a seed has been planted, a seed of righteousness, and that seed is growing in them. That growing seed is, as it grows, it's dislodging. Perhaps very slowly, perhaps for a time it is undetectable, but it is dislodging behaviors like we see listed here. Now, we might look at that person at any time in that process, and we might say, that's really a bad person. But we don't know what's happening inside of them. We don't know where they began (laughs) that journey and what factors Uh, went into the beginning of their journey or what they came from. But indeed, if that seed is there and is growing even slowly, they are becoming sons and daughters of heaven. And that growing seed in them is bearing fruit. And they will be made perfect. God will finish what He begins. But there are others where self remains supreme and self refuses to Surrender to God. Therefore, the seed simply cannot take root in their hearts. It's impossible. And the tricky thing is is that as we perceive that person, we may not realize that person had a good upbringing, that person had a good education, that person was maybe surrounded by a, a good Christian influence, and their life is propped up for a while, and we look at them from all appearances and all measurements, and we say, yeah, that's, that's a good person. But we don't, we don't see what's going on inside. Inside, perhaps very slowly, undetectable, perhaps for a time, their life is unraveling. Their life is being corrupted. Their life is falling apart. Indeed, these are sons and daughters of hell. And they are headed for separation from God because they don't want God. They never wanted God. And they never wanted what they perceived to be His interference during this life. At every moment, you and me, we are either one or the other. (laughs) At every moment, we are either one or the other. Destined for perfection, made perfect by the work of the cross and the resurrection, are destined for separation, a life falling apart from the disintegration of self. A, this, a, a self no longer connected to God, a self no longer connected to others, and a self not even connected to itself, to oneself. So, today is the day. 
Today is the day to begin the process of being fitted for eternity. And when you begin, it will result in the dislodging of these behaviors. And these behaviors dismantle, they tear apart personal righteousness. God is working His perfect righteousness in you. That's His plan. He's hoping you'll cooperate. He's using conflict to help you cooperate. And we must remember that personal righteousness is not a private, individual morality. That's how we tend to envision it. Righteousness is being in right relationship to everything human and even to the created world. Peace is the most evident byproduct where righteousness reigns. When everything is in right relation to each other, there is peace. The Christian faith is a faith of peace. Calling us calling us calling on us not to defraud our brothers. It begins there, but it also calls on us not to kill or exterminate or dominate our enemies, but rather to love them and to pray for them. My goodness, what, what, a, what, what a relevant message for the religious and cultural condition of our world. Now, this is what Paul is getting after in this passage. He wants them to retain and go back to their identity as brothers and sisters in the church of God and to employ the peacemaking principles that Jesus, that are at their disposal through the teachings of Christ and the teachings of scriptures. And he says, guys, gals, you are capable of getting this done. You can do it. You can do it. And the reputation of the church, the reputation of Christ, and your spiritual maturity is on the line. So, The way you handle conflict matters. And that's the message for us today. The way you handle conflict matters. It matters. I want you to think about here is just my closing application. I want you to think about a conflict that you're in right now. Odds are most of you are in some conflict. Could be little, could be big. Could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a parent, could be a family, other family member. Could be a person at work, but virtually all of you are in some conflict right now. And one of the peacemaking principles that Jesus speaks on is that when we're in conflict, rather than immediately blaming, <laughs> indicting, looking at, criticizing all the faults in the other person, one of the peacemaking principles Jesus teaches is we first look inside to see if I have any role in this conflict. Now, maybe I don't, but I begin by looking inside to see what, what, if and what my role is in this conflict. Here are some of the things that the underlying values we see in the Corinthians. Here is what we might say is the worldly way of resolving conflict. Here's what they were interested in. Insistence on my rights. God be my way. Desire for revenge. I'm going to get him back. She's going to pay. Overly concerned for my reputation, 
my image. For being perceived as right, even when inside I personally question it, because i got to save face. Five, willingness to bend the rules. And number six, preferring my old way of life rather than following Christ. Here is what was underlying the Corinthians' problems and their issues and why they were approaching peacemaking from the wrong way. When you look at your conflict, are you being fueled by one of these? Is that where the energy is coming from? Is that where the anger and the rage is coming from? Is there a worldly value, a worldly goal, a worldly expectation that is confusing and making muddy this conflict that you're in? See, the wisdom of the world is you have a right to act on these impulses. You must win every time. The wisdom of the cross is to walk in the pattern of Christ who did not demand his rights. And in some cases, being willing to lose if it means preserving the reputation of Christ and of Christ's church. The only motivation we could ever have to live in such a way is the pleasure, and yes, the pleasure we take in knowing, the pleasure we take in knowing, as Christians we're called to live by faith, and this requires faith, the pleasure we take in knowing that just as Christ absorbed our sin, your individual sin, just as Christ absorbed that on himself in order to lift us up, in order to set us free, so we too can lift others up by not demanding payback. And yes, even at times that we can't pay for other people's sins in a legal our spiritual way, there, there will be times where we take the road of absorbing the sin of others on ourselves by not exacting revenge, by not demanding payback. When you do that, in essence, you are absorbing their sin onto yourself in order that Christ and His church might be preserved. You know, I mean that when I say there's, there's a pleasure. It's, it's not kind of an inverted or kind of a weird, strange pleasure. But it's a pleasure in knowing that I I share this intimacy with Christ. It's why Paul would make this really confounding statement when he told the Philippians, he said, it's been granted to you. It's been given to you. It's a gift for you. Okay, Paul, what's this great gift? Not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for him. Paul, you're crazy. What does that mean? What he means is that when you don't exact revenge, when you don't demand payback, and you absorb what, uh, an offense and a hurt, then you have the opportunity by connecting to Christ. That's what Christ did for you. It helps you to understand and embrace the gospel better, and it moves you into a deeper intimacy. Jesus, that's what you did for me. Wow. That's just so incredible. That's so incredible. That's what you did for me. In that way, we can enter into Christ's suffering. How is God using conflict in us to grow us, to make us complete, to empower us, to walk in good works here, to make us perfect for eternity so that we are acceptable to our Savior and prepared to reign and rule in the world with Him when He makes all things new? What else can we do but respond 
in worship and appreciation. And let me read this breathtaking benediction from the book of Jude. Jude chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into His glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to Him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are His before all time and in the present and beyond all time. And what can the body of Christ say but say it together? Amen. Amen. Father, thank You for what You have done for us in Christ. Absorbing, though You were innocent, absorbing our sin upon You. Father, help us to enter into that with the body of Christ our brothers and sisters, and to truly live out our calling as a spiritual family. It's in your name we pray. Amen.